Oh, hello, and welcome to episode 22 of Curiosityness. This episode I have on Tommy Williamson, who is the creator and owner of BrickNerd.com, which is all about Legos and building Legos, and he animates Legos and does all these creations, and it's pretty freaking sweet. If you like Legos at all, you're going to like this episode. But Tommy's cool because he also is like just kind of a maker of things and he's super, he used to work for the movies. He still does work for movies and shows and he does special effects and we talk about all that kind of stuff. Um, so he also has another site called nerdsandmakers.com. We'll talk about all that stuff. He's just super fun to talk to because he has all these crazy things that he does and we talk about how he does stop motion animation and we talk about the history of Legos and the different sets that they build and how he got to hang out with Adam Savage from Mythbusters and it's just a fun episode if you're into this kind of stuff. If you're not into Legos and making things, you might find this episode a little uh, off the rails, but if you're into it, I think you're going to love it, which I am into it, so I loved it. Um... We went for a long time, I think like an hour and a half, so it's a good conversation. Uh, Buckle in, and here is Tommy. All right, boom, we're going. What's up, Tommy? How's it going? Doing good. How you doing? Doing good. So, you do a lot of stuff. Yes, I am pretty busy. (laughs) Just like... They're wide and varying. Yes, man, you do some cool stuff. So, I guess, why don't we just... how When someone kind of asks you what you do... What would you? What do you say to them? Like, what's your it's answer? It's a totally loaded question when somebody asks me that. <laughs> I usually ask, "Do you want the long version or the short version?" Oh, give me the long version now. I need that. <laughs> okay, I'm a semi-retired visual effects and stereoscopic supervisor for the motion picture industry. I also own BrickNerd, which is a multifaceted multimedia company, Lego-based. Uh, it is an animation company, stop-motion animation company, a design studio. A uh, design, uh, what's it? A YouTube channel, which is sort of fallen to the wayside now. Oh, okay. Um, what's the other aspect of the company? It's falling apart. (laughs) (laughs) And then I also have Nerds and Makers, which is something I'm still trying to build up. And I've kind of, I've always had this interest in in uh, in cool stuff, making things like this gaffy stick and. Oh, wow. Blaster up there. Um, that's I haven't done much of it for the last few years, and I just kept wanting to and wanting to. I mean, I'm always building, making something. Every day I'm making something. Mm-hmm. But uh, I finally decided to – this was a lounge area in here, and uh, I started that website, and then I started this makerspace so that I could just have a place to build stuff. Dude, sweet. So, yeah, I'm just always making something. Yeah. So the – you've turned um... – uh, brick nerd into, into kind of like a business. Yeah. Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I got, um, I used to work at a company called cafe effects and that's located in Santa Maria. I live in Lompoc about 30 minutes away uh-huh. when that company, I was there for the better part of 17 years. Uh, we worked on movies. Mm-hmm. Um, when that company went under, I started chasing work all over the planet. And I was in Acapulco, I was in San Diego, I was in New York, I was in Philadelphia. And then I spent nine months in London, away from my family. Mm-hmm. And about halfway through that experience, I was like, I'm done. i got to be doing something different. Right. So when I came back here, I continued to work in film. I rented a place in Los Angeles, so at least I could come home for the weekends. And I worked on a couple features down there. But then when I was done with those... 
just decided I just need to take to control my own fate. Mm-hmm. Started Brick Nerd, not knowing if I could make any money with it. Um, turns out not really. Well, blogs <laughs> are not terribly uh, lucrative. I mean, it, it does okay, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then the stop motion thing happened sort of accidentally. Oh. I was uh, working. Oh, my, my stream deck is freaking out. Oh, well. Um, I was uh, at a Lego convention in uh, Seattle called BrickCon, and a, uh, I had a, a mock, we call it, a my own creation. It's a uh-huh. name. I had a creation set up, but it's uh, a representative of a film studio. It's like a behind-the-scenes thing. The theme that year was cows versus pigs. It's a stupid theme, but I built the thing. It was like a, the behind the scenes of Moo Raker. And it was this cows versus pigs sci-fi drama that was being made. Really kind of out there idea. The whole thing is very difficult to explain. But somebody, uh, well, the, sim- simultaneously to this, there is a documentary being shot called uh, Beyond the Brick. Um, the Lego Brickumentary. Mm-hmm. They were shooting that weekend at the con to get, just to get footage for the convention stuff. They'd already been to another convention as well. And the director was looking at it while I happened to be standing next to it. And he said, this guy's industry. You could tell by looking at it that I work in the film. And he right. was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's me. So we just started chatting. Turned out the documentary needed uh, – bridging segments for all it was kind of broken into different parts of the film different segments they wanted stuff to bridge the gaps and they also wanted to tell the story of lego at the beginning in lego dismiss shut up i'll leave my phone while i'm at it no worries so we got to talking uh originally they were talking about doing it in cg which i also have a background in Mm mm-hmm um, their budget didn't really support that plan. So we, you know, they asked if it could possibly be done in stop motion. And about that same time, uh, in town here, I met James Moore, who was from Spatsy Chihuahua. It's his own company. Uh-huh. Completely coincidentally, uh, we both live in Lompoc, which is a tiny town. It's like 45,000 here. It's a small city. Right. Um, and how, how there's another filmmaker, Lego guy, animator in town, and we don't know each other beyond either of us, but we had just met, and right at the same time, this guy's saying, can you do a stop-motion uh, video, do stop-motion for our film? And we're like, okay, this is all kind of happening and falling into place. Yeah. So he and I, I start, I, I rented a place in this same complex. I looked all over town for some, some small place that I could have for just a couple months. Mm-hmm. Uh, we set up shop, and um, we did, what was it, nine minutes total, I think, of video, uh, stop-motion animation for this film. Wow. We did an animated segment at the beginning of it, and then we did little interstitials to go between all the different segments, and then it was uh, title sequence stuff we did as well. And um, the idea was being we'd set up, and then we'd tear down when we were done, but... Uh, I loved having all my Lego over here instead of in my garage. And I was also doing the YouTube channel at the same time. So I was like, just move the whole thing over here. Ended up 
Um, I shrunk down a little bit because I had two spaces, and then this space came available. And then I was like, well, I really like having all my stuff over here. So <laughs> piled all the stuff uh, into this bigger unit. He moved in, uh, took a space in the corner, and we've been here ever since making stupid videos for uh, for clients. Wow. Right <laughs> People on. have to do stop motion video. Yeah, that is sweet. You know, that's a cool story. So how, what was the – it was just kind of like you just happened to meet these guys at the uh... – where were you at? A Lego BrickCon kind of thing? Yeah, BrickCon in Seattle. It's a yearly Lego convention every October. Okay. They and were so- their, their their documentary there. I'm actually in the documentary a little bit. And nice. that's how we just happened to meet. They talk about animation. I happen to know animation. So just all these pieces fell into place. Yeah, it's crazy how that worked out. Yeah. And it was just at the time when you were wanting, wanting to kind of start up this – Start up Brick Nerds more, right? Well, Brick Nerd, I never had a full plan in place for it. I knew it was going to be a blog. Yeah. And I wanted to concentrate on on the uh, building and art side of, of Lego. Not so much the news and reviews. I mean, reviews become part of it, mm-hmm. part of the uh, what drives traffic to the YouTube channel and um, to the website. But um, they also take a lot of time and you know, sets pile up. And it's in the beginning it was so expensive, and then as I got Lego support, and they would start sending me stuff. Um, obviously, that part became not so much expensive. But since then, things have there were so many blogs had got created that they, they uh, had to feed so many mouths that it, it, it almost completely dried up. In fact, I really haven't had anything sent to me in almost a year, over a year actually. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm, so the last thing I did from that was Lego provided was the Millennium Falcon. Oh, sweet. Which I got to build with Adam Savage from Mythbusters. That was cool. Yeah, I saw that. That's cool. So how did that happen? What? How did that happen? They just contacted you? Um, I contacted them. The, the The Falcon was big news. Everybody knew about it. Everyone was super excited. And when uh-huh. found it, I, was, I think there were 12 that were going to be sent out to the different blogs and, and websites for them to review. Wow. I was 12. I was like, yes. So nice. contacted Norm from Tested and <laughs> I have a Falcon, and that's pretty much all he needed to hear. <laughs> I packed it up. I literally it arrived. I was already packed and ready to go. They dropped it off. I put it right in my truck and drove to San Francisco. And we uh, got all set up, and then the next morning we started building it. We built all day that day, and then all day the next day, or half the day next day. Oh, wow. It took 12 of us, 12 hours to build. I think that's how it worked out. Wow. How big is that thing? It's huge. It's like the biggest Lego set ever. I don't know if uh, the uh, the uh, Hogwarts castle is dethroned as far as number of parts, but that's also small parts. It's a micro scale set. Right. It's just lots of lots of little parts. The Falcon itself is. I mean, it's that big. It's huge. Oh my gosh! Like it's like a thirty six inches, I think. Jeez. Long, and it's over seven thousand parts. It's gigantic. <laughs> God, that yeah. thing's crazy. That must be cool to see in person. Yeah, that's actually really cool. That's since then, I've actually added the lights and sound kit from Brick Stuff to it. There's also I put some video of that on as well, and um, it's now even cooler. I mean, it's got a remote control and it makes noise. I'm planning on hanging it in the corner of the shop. The other side of the building is uh, well, I'm in the back room, 
Um, the front room is like my office as well as the building design area. That's where all the Lego is. And then there's also a production suite and then uh, James's area, his corner. Right. I'm planning on hanging the Falcon in the corner of the front room. Um, it's just sort of terrifying to do. I got little hooks and uh, to go on a drop ceiling. That's why I have a drop ceiling in here. Uh-huh. Uh, and I bought like super high tensile strength uh, fishing line, the, the yeah. braided. But still, I can't work up the nerve. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be fine to hang it up there because it, uh, it's like, I think it's over 15 pounds. Yeah, it's pretty massive. Lego. And it's, it's not the sturdiest of things. You can't build something that big and that weird, complex with all those intersecting compound curves and stuff without sacrificing a little bit of strength. And right. it, it won't take a fall. Yeah. It will obliterate itself. Oh, man. So, yeah, it's yeah. kind of terrifying. That would be scary. Um, it's cool. There's a sign. Um, it takes two USB cords to hook up. There's a sign uh, plug right on the ceiling there. So I can hang it up in the corner, run the plugs up, and then you just have the remote control, and you just fire it up. Man, you know? that's going to be cool when you get that thing up there, though. Yep. That's going to be awesome. Um, so w- oh, go ahead. What? Well, it's scary as hell. Yeah. You'll, you'll work up the nerve one day, though. Yeah. I I'll mean, probably- if it- Live on Twitch. That should be fun. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's every possibility. It'll come crashing down spectacularly. <laughs> I mean, if it falls, is, is it done for good? Or can you, do you, is it just going to be in pieces so you can rebuild it? What do you think? Uh, well, that's the great thing about Lego. Unless you try really hard, it's never really broken. You can always yeah. put it together. Right. So it would become it would be uh, instantaneous kit form. Right. So <laughs> probably wouldn't be damaged. So what do the instructions yeah. on that thing look like? They're, uh, uh, I don't have any right here, but it's a, it's a spiral-bound manual about uh, an inch and a quarter thick. By, uh, you know, the biggest form factor they, they make is about like that. Right. I don't know, which is like 16 by 9. Uh-huh. So that, maybe a little bit wider, 16 by 12. Um, wow. Spiral-bound. It's like a, it's a book. Yeah, for real. Yeah. Does anybody try it without the instructions? Just do it on their own? Oh, I don't see how you could. <laughs> Probably somebody out there insane enough to try, but yeah, you can't really re- reverse engineer from the outside in. Yeah, I see. Just the way it's built is kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. And plus, it's got interior sections on it that you can't see. I mean, I suppose if you had enough photographs of other people building it, you could do it. But if you just have the p- picture on the cover, nah, there's no way. No way, huh? So are the instructions pretty clear? Are they good? Are they kind of like Ikea style Uh, with just photos? Well, they're they're typical Lego. There's, you know, no words in it. It's all just, uh, you know, pictures of the model being put together. It's pretty good. I mean, there's, there's always some problems when you're putting things together. Like you can't tell what, you know, there's one piece that was added in there that you missed. It's a tiny piece and it was off one section that you didn't notice. You get like six to eight steps later, and suddenly you can't attach something because that piece is missing. Oh no! Yeah, back it up, figure out where you go. But that you can do that on a small set too. It's not that that, that uncommon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds fun. Do they still sell those things? Yeah. How much yeah. are those? Do you do you know offhand? I think it's eight hundred. Eight hundred. Six hundred. Actually, I'll just look. I'm sitting right here in front of a computer. <laughs> We have the technology. Lego.com. 
And of course, it's being very slow. Falcon. I can tell you it's so expensive that if I didn't have, uh, if Lego hadn't sent it, I still wouldn't have one. Yeah, it's 800 bucks. 800 bucks. Man. It was 800 Um, Let's see if it's got the part number on here. They, they stopped putting part numbers on it, on some stuff. Yeah, there we go. 7541. 7,541 pieces. It's, uh, wow. It's a, an epic build. Yeah, What's that's cool. Hogwarts. Uh, Hogwarts Castle. This one's only $400, but also had a really high part count. Let's see what it is. Oh, it's only 6,020. So the, uh, the Falcon still reigns supreme. Falcon beats it, huh? Yep. By over a thousand parts. Didn't they have an old Falcon? Uh, like in Lego had an older one before this one? Yeah. yeah, they they had, it's very, very similar to the set. When we were building it at Tested, uh, Sean Charlesworth brought his old one in. Mm. And that's like the old uh, kind of holy grail of, of sets. Uh -oh. um, they were going for ridiculous prices on eBay and, and the after aftermarket. Um, still are, actually. Mm -hmm. But he brought in, he had to do a little bit of repair work for it. Apparently some things fell off a bookshelf on it, but him, him and his wife hastily put it back together. And we had it there for reference. When we were building the new one and they are almost identical scale, but oh. vastly different uh, build aesthetic and, and final look. Huh, the new one's way smoother, less, less studs on it. And uh, uh, the way that they handle some of the, the compound curves, totally different approach. Yeah. I really like the new one actually a lot better than the old one. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. How do they, do you know how like they kind of, because are they all like specialty made pieces pretty much to make these sets that Lego Lego creates? No, I think the only um, new part in that set, I mean, there's custom printed ones, mm -hmm. but I think the cockpit was the only new part that was made specifically for that set. Oh, whoa. Yeah. So someone at Lego just kind of figured out how to build it and made yeah. it look crazy. I'm sure a whole team of people did, huh? It was yeah. It was probably it was primarily one designer. He probably had two other guys helping, and then it, I'm sure it took probably a year and a half to yeah. to set it all out between building it over and over again and figuring out where the weak points are and strengthening it and stuff like that. Right. Yeah, it's not yeah. a fast process for stuff. They they work on stuff ahead of time, well ahead of time. Mm -hmm. That seems like a cool fun job. Some, they just give you like a something to work on and then figure out how to build it. Yeah. Yeah. Is that like is do you do that kind of stuff too, or you're you're mostly doing kits that have already been kind of no, sent? I build own stuff too. Okay. Um, yeah, but the, the thing about being a Lego designer is you have to work, you have to live in Billund, uh, Denmark, and it's oh, it's, it's a really small town. It's like this. Huh. Imagine a small European village uh, with a giant factory stuck in the middle of it, and that's huh. what Billund is. It's it's a, actually kind of a I don't want to say bleak when i was there it was pretty bleak but it was like uh just coming out of winter uh -huh. uh, and <laughs> just walking around i was like it's like to make it with less charm but <laughs> i'm sure in the spring and then in other night times of the year it's a really nice place and the people were amazing uh -huh. but it's a teeny tiny town in the middle of nowhere in denmark and uh, if you're going to work at lego unless you're going to work in the la or the, the the american offices which are in uh, connecticut Oh, okay. But 
they don't do set designs there. Right. The set designing is all done in Billund. That's so. cool. So you've been there. Can you go visit it? Is it open to the public? The you can do a factory tour. Um, okay. But really open to the public but they've just completed a thing called the lego house which is open to the public which is kind of like a, a combination of a, a, a event center and a museum and wow. it's gigantic and i haven't been there yet but it's, it looks really cool and there's also the first lego land is right there next to the, the park as well as a whole bunch of the history of the company including the, the founder's house it's still standing oh yeah, it's it's there's a lot to do there. You're just not going to go in and see them make uh, make bricks, or you're going to see the design center or anything like that. That's why I'm really open to the public. Right. So all that stuff is in in Denmark, right by the factory and all that stuff. Yep. Yeah. Man, that's cool. That'd be a fun visit. It is. It's really cool. So the whole is it like the whole town runs on Legos, basically? Like everyone works in the yeah. town works there. Yeah. If you're not working directly for Lego, you're there to support the people who work for Lego. It's mm-hmm. you know. You're making them danishes or you're making them pizzas or you're washing the clothes or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's other things there, obviously, but it's, it's you know, a huge – I don't know if they've uh, – they're still the number one. I think it was last year they became the, the biggest toy company. Oh. And, yeah, they surpassed uh, Hasbro or Mattel and became, like, the number one. I think it's only with toy sales, mm-hmm. but – um, you know, you, you don't make that many toys, especially, you know, with, with as many sets of design a year with a, a small footprint. So I think there's like nine buildings in the Billund area. Plus they have uh, where they build the giant models and stuff. They have a huge factory or, or, or facility in Czechoslovakia. Uh-huh. And then there's the stuff in Anfield, Connecticut, where they actually also build and design uh, big models as well. It's like the American offices. So it's, it's a, a fairly big presence there as well yeah not like it is in in denmark yeah and de- the town in denmark just smells of like plastic bricks <laughs> yeah, probably all <laughs> fills long, the air yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool so do you know anything about like the history of lego like how it got started or or the founder mm-hmm. or anything yeah I, I know the whole history because we, we we had to do it for the the brickumentary oh okay yeah can you, can you give do- me like a i mean uh, I don't remember specific dates. I think it was in the 30s. Uh, the, founded, the company was founded by Ola Kirk, uh-huh. who uh, started as a toy company, and it was all wooden toys back then. And uh, they, they were wooden toys for, for many years. They, they had a couple factories, uh, flyers, that pretty much almost took the company out. Huh. Um, and then, I don't remember if it, it was, I think it was his son, Gottfried that um, was visiting a toy fair and was introduced to injection molding and brought it home and was like, check this out. And um, that kind of became the beginning of it. There was another company that was doing the uh, the interlocking brick concept. Uh-huh. And Lego didn't so much steal the design, but they just took the, the, um, the inspiration from it. And they perfected it. That was the main thing. Is the other the way that the other company was doing it, and the way Lego did it initially, the, the design wasn't working too well. It was when they figured out that the studs on top and the tubes on the bottom was the way to make things really lock together uh-huh. that, uh, that that system was born. And the, the fact that it was a system as well, where every set would work with other sets, and you would build 
you're building the the building blocks of making things with it. Right. And itself can be different, you know, and obviously it is, it's whatever you want to make with it. And that's kind of the, the real magic of it. Mm-hmm. So how did they interlock before they had that, those like studs in there? Do you know what well, they had is? studs on top and before they had, it was just hollow on the bottom. Was the, the earliest, earliest bricks were just like a, a plastic shell with the studs on top and they had little slits on the sides on the bottom so that you could put like windows in. Oh, and interesting. They, they do stack just fine, but they don't interlock. They don't click together and stay stuck. Right. Those early models, those early stuff they produced was, was, uh, a little fragile you can mm-hmm. knock it over yeah, yeah. now they're so, so tight you break your fingernails pulling them apart yeah, yeah, <laughs> sure yes for real man that's cool so it was really once they figured out the injection molding and got into all that stuff that it just took off huh yeah well i mean they were popular before they were a successful toy company um mm-hmm. it's just the and for a while they were doing wooden toys and the uh, injection molded stuff they didn't make just the bricks with the injection molder. They had other things as well, um, other toys. But, but they had kind of a full line of stuff with both wooden and plastic um, up until the point where they had another big fire. And then they decided, okay, let's just concentrate on the bricks and the system, and uh, we're going to phase out wood. And um, uh, all the rest is history because they've been wildly popular ever since. Yeah, really. So are they still... Have they been bought out by anybody, or is still Lego just its own company? No, yeah. family owned. Nice. Oh, that's cool. Are they are they even a public company? Nope. Wow. Just family owned. That's crazy. Yeah, because they're huge. That's awesome. Yep. Still the same like family involved in in just generational stuff. Do you know? Yep. Yeah, that's the great grandson is now in charge of the company. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's fun. They have other people that you know are running the company, especially when they have some problems in the the nineties with some, uh, bad designs. <coughs> they had a, a dark period. Oh no. Really terrible sets. And they had too many elements they were making and, uh, they were they kind of lost. They lost their path. They weren't really thinking of the end user experience. They weren't thinking of how, how people want to build with it. They were making sets that were too, few pieces to put together to make one thing and couldn't make anything else. They started making these terrible action figures and uh, mm-hmm. they very, very close to, uh, to being done. And then they brought in a, a CEO from the outside and kind of put them back on the right path. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. And it, it seems like they've had a lot of success by kind of combining all their, you know, combining Lego with a bunch of, like pop culture stuff and movies and everything where you can build like fun stuff from other things like star Wars or whatever. Um, that just seems like it was huge for them to make that move. Star Wars was a gigantic move when they brought in intellectual property as well as streamlining their production system, cutting the number of bricks that they produce, um, just making a lot of more smart business decisions as well as making stuff that was super desirable, especially star Wars. Um, that was really the thing that saved the company. Mm-hmm. Star Wars is still like the by by far the most popular thing that they do. Yeah, I can imagine. Yep. It's so fun. Uh, <coughs> do you know how that when they started the um, like got into Legoland and all that kind of stuff? Uh, I believe that was the mid to late sixties. Oh, that long ago? <clears throat> yeah, that's when they opened up the one that was 
literally right next door to the factory. Like one wall was the factory. Outside of that was the park. Wow. Um, in the early 90s, I think, is when they started building them other places, mm-hmm. including here in California. I think was California the second one. Um, but they realized pretty quick that they're a toy company and not really a, a theme park company. So they, they had it for a while, and then they sold it to a company called Merlin. Oh, okay. They continue to be um, a part of it. Obviously, their brand is integrated with it. So, But as far as the day-to-day runnings of the company, Mer- Merlin is the one taking care of all that stuff now. And they built one in Florida and Malaysia and I think it's another one someplace else. Okay. Yeah. So the Lego Lego's integrated into it, but not doesn't does not that company. Okay. Seems like a smart move because that's a total different business. That's crazy. It is. Yeah. I think the, the park originally started just because so many people were interested in their product and they just kept coming and wanting factory tours and stuff. So it's like, okay, let's give them something to do that's not here. They yeah. can just do it. Plus, there was a, a sculptor, the, the original person who um, built, like, just cool models was a, a woman who worked for the company. Her name is eluding me right now, but she's kind of a legend. Um, all of her stuff was they, – she had, they had a way to, to display her stuff, and she could make even bigger stuff. Yeah. So, like, you know, full-size giraffes and things like that. Right. Oh, so cool. So how do you – do you know how um... – What's the name for someone who like builds Legos like that? Is there an official name? Uh, as well, <clears throat> if you're designing sets, you're a set designer. Okay. Um, if you're building the large objects, you're a master builder. Um, and if you're just a an enthusiast, there's AFOL, A F O L, adult fan of Lego. Tfol, <laughs> uh, which is teen fan of Lego. And there's a whole bunch of other acronyms for it. It's it's kind of a terrible name. Some people call them awfuls, which, <laughs> why would you do that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so I'm an AFOL. Right. Yeah. Um, so how, do you know what, like, the prerequisite is to get into, like, to become a master Lego builder? Usually it's just a cool resume. You, you make some, some good stuff and you catch somebody's eyes somewhere. Um, but... Not necessarily. Uh, there was a, a builder named Eric Barsegi that ended up with uh, the job. He wasn't really into Lego. He was a design guy. Uh, and, uh, I can't remember exactly what his background was, but he, he took a job with Lego just because it sounded interesting, not because he was into the brick. He's one of their premier designers now. Wow. Right on. Um, most of the guys there, they, it kind of depends on what you want to be. If you want to be a master builder, you may work for Legoland, in which case you're not working for Lego. You're working with their product, which you work for Merlin. Right. <clears throat> they have a design studio. I don't. I think it's there's still one in Carlsbad. It's small though. There was once. There's like one in every park, but those have become kind of uh, uh, like a tourist attraction version of the model shop. They're there to maintain the models. They do build a little bit of stuff in there, but they're mostly there as kind of a showpiece for the people visiting the park. The actual, they're you know actively making cool things were offsite. And then all that got moved to Florida and also obviously Czechoslovakia. People in Czech though are actually working for Lego. They're the ones that built like the giant X-wing that was a couple of years ago and uh, 
something big that oh the uh, Overwatch stuff is just about to pop. Um, they built a whole bunch of big stuff for the new Overwatch line. So they're always doing it. They're always making something huge to promote the company and to uh, to promote, promote play. Yeah, because that just seems like a super fun job that would be highly coveted and hard to get. Yeah, um, I can imagine. I sort of tossed around the idea of looking <laughs> to it, but. Um, Merlin didn't pay very well. Mm-hmm. And I, at the time I was working in film, which does pay pretty well when you're working. So it's a, it's a, it was kind of a toss up. And also I'd have to relocate. I kind of like where I live. So yeah, I own a home here. I have kids in school. Right. So, yeah. yeah. I get you. Well, you found a good like compromise where you kind of get to do your own <laughs> stuff and, and work yeah. on stuff that you like, you know, that's kind of the whole idea is I just want to kind of, I want to make cool things and try and figure out a way to get paid for it. So that's kind of the, what I do. I still work on film. I do two or three films a year. Mm-hmm. When when it's when the timing's right and it's interesting and you know I feel like doing it. If, I, if it's not right, then I just won't do it. I've had offers to go to to, uh, to Canada to work and Australia to work and some place else, but I just I don't want to do that anymore. I, I can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm tired of, of being away from my home and my family while, you know, I can make a lot of money, but it's just not worth it to me. Yeah. Well, it's good that you're in a spot, in a position where you can say no to that stuff and, and do what is important, you know? Oh, yeah. I consider myself very lucky. Yeah. Very cool. So I, can you tell me about some of the uh, some of the film projects that you've worked on and kind of the stuff that you do? Uh, yeah. I. Well, did you look at my IMDb link? Yeah, I saw you worked on like Westworld and stuff like that, right? <laughs> That's one of the more recent projects, obviously. Yeah. Um, I started in Creature Effects. Um, I was a weird kid in school. I was I played with makeup starting when I was about nine years old. Um, and originally, I wanted to do uh, makeup and makeup effects. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Let me grab a drink. Hold on a second. No worries. Fuck, I keep them right here. Luckily. <laughs> ah, orange juice. Get that vitamin C. Yes. Donald Doug orange juice. It's the best orange juice. Might be. <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> I started working in nineteen eighty eight in uh, two years after I graduated high school. Um, I got my first film on The Blob. Oh. The one with Shawnee Smith and uh, Matt, Matt Dillon. Okay. Yeah. So that was that was my first film. Huh. And back then, um, I started doing like I was a generalist when I was making my own stuff. But the first job I got in the industry, which kind of led to the next job and the next one after that, mm-hmm. was all doing the animatronics and mechanical stuff. So I was working on the inside of creatures for a lot, a lot of the time. Uh-huh. <clears throat> I did do some prop work and some makeup work um, throughout the years. I sprinkled that stuff in, but most of what I did was uh, the stuff that you can't even see in the film. It's it's uh, all the substructure. It's the servos and the fiberglass underneath the creature that's moving around. Right. Yeah. So what you worked on was the blob that you worked on. That was a remake of the Steve McQueen one. Yes. Okay. So what'd you do yeah. on that specifically? Um, I worked. 
there were actually two sides of the shop on that. There was Tony Gardner's side. He did all the the makeup and gore stuff, you know, the stuff that was applied to actors. Uh-huh. I worked on what was Lyle Conway's side and then turned into Stuart Ziff's side when Conway was like, go. Oh. And we did the blob effects. We made the giant quilts, the, uh, the vinyl and the uh, foam pieces of the blob itself. And we did like some miniature people and some... Uh, uh, you know, just mostly the stuff that didn't involve the the actors themselves, mm-hmm. so just the blob stuff. So I spent weeks and weeks, uh, you know, making little mechanical guys, boom, tentacles, little things that flip underneath doors. Right. Uh, we spent weeks shooting all that stuff and just covered with slime every day. <laughs> we made methicel slime, the same stuff like from Ghostbusters. Uh-huh. We put that by the trash can full. Wow. Mix it with a drill in trash cans. <clears throat> One of the things that made the blob itself, we made these quilts. They were silk, and they were sewn together with, like, pockets, and then they were airbrushed with veins and stuff like that. And then they were painstakingly filled with syringes, big, giant syringes, full of slime. And then, you know, they'd be draped over, like, the, the phone booth for that one section over over the kid for the, when he's getting stretched and pulled apart. Right. Um, coming through the, the theater and all that stuff. There's those, like, these enormously heavy quilts made of silk and full of slime. Because we were covered with it every day. Wow. Yeah. And then the, the <clears throat> with a product called Hexaplasm, which is like the... Uh, a slime that comes in little cups. Yeah. I the slime, it's like gooey stuff. We had that stuff in five gallon buckets, and it, we had a wall of it behind the production office. It was there, there were buckets they were stacked up. It was like, I don't know, 40 buckets wide by about 12 buckets high. It wow. was so much of the slime in different colors, too. Yeah. Clear, pink, and red. And it was just, there was so much of it there. Yeah. yeah. When we let go, they were like, take a bucket of slime when you leave. So I'm like, all right. So I got a couple. I had a big clear one and a big pink one. Yeah. And we ended up using that on The Boneyard, which was a terrible movie, but a pretty awesome time. <laughs> Man, that's so cool. That stuff is fun. Yeah, I've always wondered, like, what they do with that stuff at the end. Like, all that slime, <clears> they just give it away to the crew, huh? And this particular feature, yeah. I mean, the methicel doesn't keep. That's like a it's like a food thickener. It's like the stuff that's inside uh, uh, apple pies. Um, mm. Yeah, anytime you've got kind of a, a gooey consistency, it's probably a combination of uh, cornstarch and methyl cellulose. Oh, okay, so, like a food product. Right, and it doesn't right. keep; it dries out. It, it, it'll go rancid. I so see. We had a couple problems with that. We had a couple times that someone was making it and miscalculated how much they made, and they would make a five-gallon bucket of useless slop. It was like this. It's hard to describe. They wouldn't like do the stretchy, slimy, drippy thing. It was just like this: the stuff that would, you know, come out in, in handfuls. It was just terrible. <laughs> wow. Okay, so so you've been you did kind of that kind of stuff, like the more practical effects and stuff. But then, did you have to kind of make the switch to more digital stuff? When Jurassic Park came out, I saw the writing on the wall. I yeah. was like, oh, you know, we're extinct. Yeah. And that was pretty much what the case was. So I bought an Amiga computer and I bought Imagine 3D 
I started teaching myself 3D stuff at home. And then that continued working on film. And then uh, I think it was late 92, um, this company that got formed in Santa Maria called Cafe FX, back then it was called Computer Cafe, terrible name. <laughs> I'm associated with things that are terrible. Um, the, uh, these two guys set up a company in this very small town just 30 minutes away from here. And my mother-in-law sent me the uh, clip in the paper. Uh, so I, was, I was like, hey, they're using Amiga computers. So I gave them a call. I was like, guys want to work on movies? And we're like, I think we can. No, now my phone's making <laughs> <laughs> Computer's making noise. <clears throat> uh, let's see if I can do do not disturb without work. Yeah. Okay, let's see if that works. Um, so I called him up, said, you know, I think we can we can crack into the uh, we can break into the film. You know, back then CG was super new. Nobody trusted it. Nobody thought you could really do much with it. Jurassic Park was. Uh, a shift in the attitude on it and definitely a, uh, you know, a, a landmark as far as the, the, the switch to the digital technology, but still a lot of people were, you know, when we made, we were doing this, people were still shooting on film. There was a big hassle between going from the, the photochemical to the digital and back again. Um, oh. it was, it was a, a tedious and difficult process, but, um, you could do things that you just couldn't do otherwise. And it, and it would speed up what would take, you know, a, an army of guys, two guys can do in a small room in just a couple of weeks. Whereas you would have you know, spent hundreds of thousands of dollars building all this stuff in real life. So if you could even do it, I mean, it was, you know, you couldn't do a full size brachiosaur walking. It's just, you know, in, in, real life it would just be too much too yeah. difficult too much weight too too difficult a, a technical problem mm-hmm. so you couldn't do that thing realistically you know or within uh something something that was like photo real totally convincing until that switch when uh jurassic park happened yeah so we spent <clears throat> and we did a lot of stuff early it was like uh foster's freeze commercials you know little ice cream guys and oh yeah it's local local advertising and stuff <clears throat> it wasn't until uh lord of illusions happened um the guy who was in charge of that he was both in charge of the creature effects and the, the makeup and stuff as well as the digital and uh visual effects um i had worked with him on freaked and uh, a couple other projects and he became like this conduit and I ended up going over to Clive Barker's house for a, a good part of an afternoon, just trying to convince him that we could do a realistic cave of rock that we were supposed to be falling down like this pit to hell. Uh-huh. That was how leery the filmmakers were of the process back then. Can you make it look real? Because up to then, it was all like Last Starfighter and, and uh, the, the early Pixar stuff, you know, which was fabulous, but not real not gritty right. not, not realistic yeah making that leap for a lot of people took a lot of convincing mm-hmm. not so, like just the hardware firepower that you needed um 
you know, just the, the, the tedium of having the film scanned and then put on exabyte tape, which is eight millimeter videotape, and then transferring that, we put it, put it back in. We'd have to download it, put it on our hard drives. Hard drive spaces were very small back then. Yeah. You'd have, you could work on like, you know, three shots at a time and then you'd have to offload it, put a new shot back on so that you could, because it just didn't have enough space for it. Right. You know? And back then we were doing stuff that was, you know, pretty low resolution and pretty, uh, uh, you know, low bit, bit rate and um, monumentally crude compared to where we are now. You're working with stuff with 8K and 16-bit depth. You know, you work at every frame itself is like 36 to 40 megabytes, you know, just a frame, one single frame of this thing. Yeah. And then you have multiple copies of it, multiple layers. You've got the background, the foreground. You've got elements that are shot for it. And then plus you're generating all the CG that's going to be put into a shot. And then the compositing phase. So you're just generating these massive amounts of data that would have just boggled our minds back then. Because we've got 100 megabyte SideQuest drives that we're carrying on air- airplanes and stuff like that. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't even think about the fact that you would have to transfer it from, you know, the film to digital and then back. That that makes sense, though. Yeah, and it was it was a big hurdle to get past. Mm-hmm. Now things are so streamlined; it's amazing. We yeah. shoot an Aerie Alexa, digital files come off of it. They're just handed over, basically. We work on it and then hand them their files back, and they put them right back into the edit system. It's all instantaneous. It took weeks before. Yeah. Now you can turn it on a shot in four days now. Mm-hmm. Little shoot it and then have a shot you're dropping into the cut four days later. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's amazing. That's cool. Yeah, so you've kind of had like two, um, almost two different careers where you kind of learned all this like mechanical stuff and the, maybe even the makeup and everything, but then you totally had a transition to digital. Yeah. And like so effects and everything. It's, when I started this stuff, we couldn't have imagined how fast things would change and where it was going to go. Mm-hmm. When I was just starting out, digitals were still the, the, the digital stuff was still very, very crude. Nobody would thought it would get as good as it did as quick. And I was actually I consider myself lucky because I was able to work in the photochemical days and the the you know rubber and plastic days. Um, and make that switch to where things are totally digital now. We still have plenty of makeup effects, practical stuff that happens. I'm a big fan of practical. Mm-hmm. But um, you can also do amazing things with the computer. So I like the fact that when I approach stuff and I'm looking at how things can be done, I'm looking at the entire spectrum of how it can be done. And I, I, I like to have that, that uh, foundation in my career that I can actually think of things that way. Because I like to approach a shot I don't do this so much anymore. I don't do visual effects supervision. But back when I did, um, I had, my saying was the shot dictates the means, which means that you look at what needs to be done, and there's going to be a logical way to do it. You know, If you've got a shack that blows up, build it quarter scale and blow it up. That makes the most sense. Uh-huh. If you have water in the effect, build it as big as you can get and use real water unless it's too big. And then now we can do things really cool water effect wise uh, digitally you know it's like things like you know giant waterfalls and stuff like that so there's every shot there's a logical way to approach it that's just the way that i think and i'm a lot of that is based on having had to deal with all these different disciplines and, and ways of doing things through the years mm-hmm. 
30 years now. Yeah. My mind. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So, I mean, when, you're, when you'll recommend like doing a small model rather than, you know, doing it a full thing with CGI or something, would like, why would you, what would be the reasons for either one? Well, doing destruction in the computer is computationally intensive and difficult to get just right. You, you'll do iteration after iteration after iteration after iteration. Whereas, um, you know, say you're trying to simulate like a shack getting blown apart, you know, the all the things that you get for free when you just take a shack and put a quarter stick of dynamite in it and a couple bags of gasoline, you get it all for free. The shockwave that happens, the the splintering of the wood, the way that the, the flames develop and move out, you should slow motion how all that stuff happens and falls apart. Doing all that in the computer, you will spend weeks and weeks just trying to get it right to make it look right. And half the time, it never really works. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not the same if you if you don't do it right when you build it and blow it up. You might have to do it again because if you that you can screw that up too. But right, <laughs> just the, the the simulations that are required to do that stuff are also super computationally intensive. They take, you know, m- big mega computers, you know, hours if not days for every simulation that you run. And, you know, and you're basically giving it all the rules to run under, saying this is what's going to happen inside all this particle force is going to go outside it's going to hit these things these pieces are going to splitter this way because they're weak here here and here you have to lay all the rules out for it yeah and if you don't, it doesn't look right so you'll do it once and it'll look terrible you go back and refine the rules model the thing differently or break it apart differently simulate it again you know it takes a couple days of it to figure out the simulation on it so um it's just quicker and easier to hire a team of experienced miniature builders who know what's going to happen in the shot and then just hire a, a properly uh, trained pyrotechnician to blow it apart. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah. And you have the, you have, when you have both backgrounds, you can decide on that, which, so you are kind of in a unique spot. Yeah. Um, so do you think, I mean, as things get better and better though, do you think that like, building, you know, miniatures and doing all this stuff is going to totally be gone? Or do you think there'll always be a spot for it, maybe? Uh, it's, the trend is less and less and less. So I have to suppose that eventually you won't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. It's because it gets, you know, every, every year is not a order of magnitude better, but definitely an improvement. Yeah. The machines get faster the, the code gets smarter, um, how you can design things um, to, to, to work that way, especially with you doing the simulation type stuff. Every year is uh, a big shift from the previous. Mm-hmm. And the, all the companies that are making the miniatures, there's fewer and fewer of them. So yeah. I suppose eventually they won't, do, they won't do that anymore, at least in that particular aspect. Right. You know, there's always going to be some people who hold on to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I would probably be one of those people. Yeah. Just from my background. But, you know, I'm not going to live forever. And there's going to be another generation of people that entertain and make cool stuff coming after that. They may not. So, yeah. It might be. I mean, there's other aspects that we just, things we just don't do anymore because there's no reason to. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at the 
the infrastructure that was in place to handle film, actual film that went through cameras, um, that's been decimated by the, the, the rise in digital technology. The smarter companies saw that coming and made the shift. Um, Kodak tried. They still make film, and there's some filmmaker, filmmakers who are steadfast and going to use it. Yeah. It still cuts on a flatbed, as, as I understand it. Huh. You know, shoots film and cuts on a flatbed because that's the way he's built. But he's not going to be making movies forever and another generation is coming along. But if you look at what it took to to make the film itself, to shoot the film, the cameras that it took, to handle the film, to transfer the film, to develop the film, to make the the one lights and the the edit copies of the film, the when you, the edit systems that work with film, the people who cut the negatives, um, all that stuff, that entire industry, all based on us, you know, what started as a celluloid film that went through a camera, it's all gone now. Almost. Yeah. That's so, crazy. And, yeah, and what what does it take to make the digital effects, the silicon graphics machines, the uh, the incredibly high priced specialty computers? That's all gone now too. Anybody. Literally anybody with free software and a computer that costs as little as 250 bucks make anything. Yeah. If you got the time, you got the talent, you can make anything. Mm-hmm. I would have happily sacrificed a body part for that kind of ability when I was in high school. Yeah. So, I mean, take my foot. That's fine. That's cool. <laughs> we, I mean, this phone has an exponentially large or, or higher amount of capability than the entire amount of, of, of equipment that was at my disposal, which was not all that much, granted, uh, when I first started making movies of my own. Mm-hmm. Just to be able to to shoot and cut and compose music. You can make an entire movie with one of these now. Yeah. It's been done, but you can do it. That just blows my mind. Yeah, it's crazy. Why aren't people doing it? My, neither of my boys were like, eh, yeah, I can do that. And I try to get them, look, you can shoot movies and we can cut it right here. We can make music on it. They're like, eh, video game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to throttle them. We just always had it, so we don't appreciate it, I guess. <laughs> I guess. You know, they're, also, they're also just not you know, filmmakers at heart. Mm-hmm. You know, I was worked at age nine when Star Wars came out. I was like, I'm doing that. That's yeah. going to be my career. I'm doing that kind of stuff. That's amazing. Nice, yeah. Seems like a lot of people were like that. Um, yeah, that's like, I guess from like a, just being a viewer of like a movie watcher, it wouldn't really matter if it's how it's made. We just want it to look, you know, real and be, and convince us, but it just seems cool. At least to me, when you kind of go look up the behind the scenes, uh, stuff later and you find out that it was like a practical thing that was actually made and, and blown up or whatever, you know? Yeah. It it just seems cool, but it's just going to change for whatever's most practical and easiest and cheapest, I guess, right? I still geek out on that stuff. Yeah, I I have never I've never grown up as far as that stuff goes. I'm still watching the behind the scenes. I love extra features on on DVDs and Blu-rays. Um, I kind of miss it. They're like a dying breed now with this all download technologies. We've got the the iTunes extras. But it's just not the same. It doesn't seem to me as much effort being put into that because that, that was like a marketing tool. That was a way to say, you know, here come get this thing. You know, I like the movie, but I can see the behind the scenes and see the commentary, listen to the commentary, and all that stuff. 
that's all kind of going away now. And it makes me sad because I really, really love that stuff. Yeah. Enough of it. Yeah, me too. That stuff is so fun to watch. Um, and it's just not the same when you're just watching a guy on a computer making stuff. But it, it is cool to see how they, yeah. they lay all that in there when they show you that. It, that is cool to see also, you know. I did notice. I used to subscribe to uh, Cinemagic or Cinefix, mm-hmm. which is kind of like the premier behind-the-scenes visual effects magazine. It's not even really a magazine. It's like a, a quarterly produced small book. And they would put two or three films in it and just really break them down. And they had like, you know, whole interviews of the people who put it together, lots of behind the scenes pictures. And I just gobbled that up. I've got a whole collection of them. But I stopped about oh, five years ago getting them because it was every, every picture was the same. It's like a guy sitting at a computer, a guy behind him with a foam cup. And that's like all you see over and over and over again. <laughs> the guy behind him with the foam cup. That's good. <laughs> the guy in charge and then the monkey at the computer. Yeah. It was the monkey. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That's cool. I love talking about that stuff with you, especially since you've, like, lived through the change of it. That's cool. It's fun. To bridge that gap. Yeah. Um, so let's go back to, like, the Lego stuff a little bit. Did you? So did you kind of always have uh, – were you always just in your spare time playing with Legos and, and building stuff? Yeah, when I was a kid, I mean, we didn't have as much as the kid two doors down, Sean. Yeah. He had all. <laughs> oh, Sean. <laughs> all the good stuff. Sean. <laughs> um, he had all the, the cool space stuff. I had some, we, you know, we had a, a, a reasonable amount. He had like five, five times as much, but he was an only child. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I played with Lego since I was, I don't know, six, seven. Mm-hmm. That's been a feature of my life all, all ever since. There's a phase that uh, Eiffel's call the Dark Ages. And it's kind of, most people hit it about 10 to 12, where you kind of you lose interest in bricks. And you're like, hey, 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 girls. Oh, hey, girl. Yeah. Or boys. And uh, the Lego goes in the attic, and then your parents sell it. And, you know, and it's, it's, this is usually a tragic story. Mine's tragic as well. I didn't uh, consider myself too cool for it. Um, I always always wanted to play with it. Mm-hmm. It's just when my parents divorced, all the toys went with my younger sisters, and me and my brother kind of went with all the more you know, young, older child, child stuff. So right. there was one little thing of Lego that I kept, a little box. So just you know, not very big, like a shoebox full of Lego. Mm-hmm. And that eventually got stolen, so... I didn't have a dark age. I have what we call a dim age where you had a reduced interest. And then that was only reduced interest because I didn't have it anymore. Somebody took it from me. So <laughs> when I started making money, when I started working in film, probably about 1990, maybe a little bit earlier than that, 89. Mm-hmm. Uh, once I had disposable income, I started buying sets immediately. The big Pirates line came out. That was the first time that the, the classic Pirates were introduced. I bought every set. I had the Black Seas Barracuda. I had the, I had the whole line, and I loved it. And I've been buying it ever since. Yeah. Back then, I was more of a, of a not so much a collector, just an enthusiast. I would always, I would go to Toys R Us all the time. I, you know, I realized at one point that. I would always find that aisle if we were at Kmart or something. I was always looking at the toys, and I realized 
I, I still want this stuff. Why don't you just get this stuff? Yeah. So I started, you know, I have a ton of GI Joes. I've got action figures. I've got you know, prop toys. You know, I've got a lot of stuff. It's a lot of it's here. Mm-hmm. It's kind of always surrounded me. And just because I, I enjoy it. it, it brings me pleasure. So, and, you know, I, I could afford it. So I was buying it. Um, I didn't really make the, uh, the A-fold jump where I was like, you know, making, designing my own stuff and, you know, posting pictures and interacting with the community. That didn't happen until it was like 2005, 2006. Okay. Around there. I think that's about then. Yeah. About then. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, went to my first con. Um, I started the uh, my AFOL thing. Kind of started when I I was fascinated with Legoland. Wanted to go there and just kept never not never being able to get down there. I can't remember exactly when our first trip was. I think it was 2005. Um, my no, it had to be earlier than that. I don't, doesn't matter. Um, when I went down, they. Well, we probably backtrack it exactly because it was the 20th anniversary of the Lego Club, and they were celebrating at the park. And I think this might have been not my first visit, but it was in the early times of, of visiting the park. Mm-hmm. They had this event at the at the clubhouse in the back. They were everyone was making little cakes to celebrate the uh, the, the occasion, <clears throat> and I I didn't realize that it was a competition. I thought that people were just doing it. People, they were actually competing to win, I think, season passes or tickets to the park or something else. I can't remember what I won. But, you know, I was like, cool, I get to play with Lego. And, you know, and then I ended up having, like, my kids were, like, running for parts. They were going to get stuff for me. My family eventually lost complete interest and just went away. They went over to someone. <laughs> I was there, nah, go away. I'm working. Right. <laughs> this little birthday cake that had a thing on the front. And, uh, few weeks later I got informed that I won and it's like sent me a package of stuff. I was like, cool. Awesome. <laughs> and every month they actually run a contest at the park. I don't know if they still do. Um I think there've been a lot of shifts in the way that uh, the Legoland does things that I haven't been totally excited with. I I got a a lifetime pass in my wallet. But um Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know they had those. Yeah. When I first went to the park, I saw that they had it. And I was like, that just seemed like a really cool thing to have. Yeah. There it is. A lifetime pass ambassador. An ambassador. <laughs> so I um, I wanted to get one of those. They were $1,000. Yeah. And uh, so I just started like sucking my money away. And then we went to the park and I was going to, I was going to do it. I had my money. I had been saving and saving for it. We went to the park and it had doubled in price. Oh, God. Bucks. I was like, no. <laughs> but then um, I can't remember what it worked on. I worked on some project, made all kinds of overtime. I had, we were flush with money at the time and it just happened to coincide with a trip to the park. I'm like, I'm going to do it. My wife was like, go ahead. <laughs> so, <laughs> she's my enabler. Yes. You got to do it. Cool thing about it is I still get four tickets a year to the park. When I originally did, there was like lots of perks. You get like this crazy good parking space. It's literally like, in like you, I could throw a rock at the front gate from my parking space if I get the best one in that section. Uh-huh. Uh, then there was a uh, once a year building session with a master builder, master model builder. That was really cool. That was like one of the things I found most appealing for it. And then you get four tickets a year to the park. 
and um, some discounts throughout the park. Mm-hmm. Like I, you know, and by now, and also free parking. Yeah. So by now, it has paid for itself. It paid for itself probably in the first four years, five years. Mm-hmm. Especially when I was working down in San Diego, and I could go there like three nights a week. <laughs> but the uh, the master model builders um, sessions, those have. They've, they've turned into basically you go there, you hang out with a master model builder, you build a mosaic, which is just, you know, a picture that you build on a flat thing. Oh. And you get to keep it. They usually put it up in the park. So I guess oh. you can take back later and go, I built that. That's great. <laughs> but we used to make really cool things. One of the, the last things I did was a, a Tauntaun with a rider designed by Gary McIntyre. It's about that tall. Uh-huh. Really cool, really elaborate. I still have the set. Um, it was that cool of stuff and somehow this turned to you know a, a slave labor program where you make decisions <laughs> for the park yeah or, really no anymore <laughs> so i get my four tickets a year i actually haven't been there in a, in a couple of years i, I you know i'm now it's, it's far enough away my kids aren't interested anymore so it's kind of biding my time for where i'm going to be the coolest grandfather on earth because i want to have a lifetime past a lego land yeah really <laughs> that's awesome so what do you do with the generally with the, after you build a model? Do you keep it intact and display it somewhere? Or do you dismantle it? Yeah, I've got. I mean, there's a few things that I've built that I've held on to. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of them I give away. I don't know why, but here, this is cool. Have it, <laughs> and they're like, "Oh, cool." Yeah. Built. Um, I built a, a Star Trek phaser, and I've made. I think I've built seven of them now. Each one of them I've given away. I've never had one from my own for very long. I've built it. Someone goes, that's really cool. And I go, oh, you can have it. Because I can always make another one. I got all the bricks. Yeah. Um, I have the last one I gave to was for Adam Savage. When we went back to for the uh, Tested Live thing. When I went there to build the Falcon, I brought a bunch of crap with me. And one of the things that was, was that and my tricorder. And um, Adam was like, I need one of those. So I was like, sorry, Adam, because this one's Norm. So he got He's got his. Uh-huh. And I was like, okay, I'll build you one. So when I went back for the uh, the tested live thing, I brought him one with a special little background display, which is actually in the background of some of the recent uh, uh, videos that they post on, on tested.com. It's like, oh, hey. awesome. He's actually, it's actually in this, one of his uh, display cases in his workshop. That's cool. Yeah, kind of fun. So what's your um, – do you have like a um, – like an organization system or something for all your bricks or are they just kind of thrown into a pile or how do you, how do you do all that? It's it's organized, but always a mess, I guess would be a good way to put it. I can't keep up with the amount of bricks that come in. Mm -hmm. You can never organize fast enough. And, you know, and when we tear down a set or we, um, you know, get in a a bulk lug bulk or we get in a, uh, I guess we don't even know what that is. Uh, Lug is Lego user group. Okay. as a program where they will work with the lug to um, place bulk orders of bricks from the company. Oh. We'll all get together. I belong to Logola, which is a Lego user group of Los Angeles, and we will order like you know, $23,000 in brick from, from Lego once a year, and they all distribute it to the hundreds of members of the club. So cool. you know, that stuff comes in as a big bag full of stuff, and you know, most of it will probably get away, but eventually that one bag will be in the way and it'll get tossed in a 
in a bin and <laughs> just sit in there for you know weeks, if not months, if not years. Mm-hmm. So it just it can never keep up. I'm just always sorting it. Yeah. Um, if you go to my YouTube channel, the uh, Brick Nerd, you'll see uh, an episode called it's an episode of Cribs, like that MTV show. Uh huh. It's a parody episode of that. In there, I show the, the the layout of the studio, and I show how I organize the bricks. You can see how I put stuff together. Oh, okay. Perfect. <laughs> Parody of Cribs. That's good. Um, okay, I want to talk about your animation that you do with the, the stop motion stuff. Mm-hmm. So how does, like, you said you did, I think, like a nine-minute thing for that first uh, documentary, right? Yeah. Like, how yeah. how long did that take? Do you remember how uh, we had to turn that around really fast because it was a tight production schedule. Um, I think we did beginning to end on that thing was like two months, which is really fast for that amount of animation. Uh-huh. Um, things like my Batman shorts took longer. So they were like uh, six months, but they also needed to be squeezed in between actual paying gigs because other people would, you know, pay us money to, to move plastic toys around and, and shoot them with a camera. Um, yeah time wise we would probably do about uh, 20 to 30 seconds a day depending on the complexity of the shots okay sometimes sometimes more Mm -hmm. it really depends on what's going on and we just did some stuff for um, Lego Harry Potter line that just came out and those were I think we did to turn around on each one of those in about four days. So it's a lot of stuff to cram into, but each one of them is only 15 seconds long. Okay. So you're getting commissioned by like, this is from the Lego company to do these and stuff? Yeah. Oh, cool. Uh, technically, I think we they go to advertising firms. The advertising firm hires us to generate the content for them. Right. We hand it back and then they cut it into their, they do the music and all this stuff. It depends on what we do. Sometimes we do the entire thing and it's just turnkey. Mm-hmm. We do it um, like um, uh, Lego, not ideas, uh, Lego Life is an app that uh, for your iPhones and uh, smart devices. Uh, we did, let's see, a 60 second commercial and two 30 second commercials that were derivative of the 60. So mostly footage from the 60, but each one of them had special things in it. Mm-hmm. Um, that took months, months and months and months. Um, planning, I think I went, my first initial meeting was in April, and I don't think we finished and handed everything over until October. Wow. Uh, last, was that last year? I mean last year. <laughs> it seems like a lifetime ago. Yeah. I did, I had to custom build a, a motion control rig because of the way that the design this, you know, they wanted the spot to happen. There was no way to do it without building custom rig. Huh. So I built a, actually have a custom built motion control system. This is the, uh, the shell from a second version of it. Doesn't oh. have this right now, but I'm building another one. Huh. Um, and you can use the software that you use, DragonFrame, to control stepper motors at the same time you're controlling the camera and um, you do the animation. Okay. So I built a system that will track the camera in about 10 feet, I think, um, 
and there was a boom arm on it that would make it translate up and down. It was actually a slider mounted sideways. And then I designed a counterweight system so that the slider would, would work with very little effort when it was going up and down because otherwise all the weight of the camera rig was on there. Uh-huh. Then there was a hand tilt system on the front of that and a focus puller oh on that. Gosh. And then a giant, um, like a four-foot um, motorized turntable to rotate this gigantic model that was built by the, the model shop in Enfield. Uh-huh. So they had to, I had to go to the design meeting for that. They built the model. They shipped it out to me in a gigantic crate, barely fit in my truck. We had a, okay, we're upstairs, and there's no elevator here. So we had to carry it up the stairs, weigh 300 pounds. And then um, it's, it sat on this platform, and we had to design these shots to move in on it and then rotate the model around to, to get these specific angles. Yeah. All while also animating all the characters that are on this giant model. Man. So hugely complex. Yeah. I think I – let me double check before I send you there. I think on my YouTube channel there's a, a behind-the-scenes of it. Let me make sure before I put my foot in my mouth. <laughs> I, I did one. I don't know if I put it on there for sure. Yeah. Yeah, this stuff is gnarly. I had I never knew if it was like if the camera was moving like frame by frame like that or if it was kind of done like digitally later like just to make the camera look like it was moving. Um well, it depends. Sometimes if it's just a, like a simple zoom, uh-huh. you'll do that as a post effect. Okay. Uh, uh Let's see it on here. Oh wait, yeah it is. Okay, so if you look for Lego Life, great stuff happens here. Behind the scenes. Okay. Um, you can see how the, the rig that was built for this. And I also have a video on the what I call the NerdFlex motion control system. Uh-huh. Yeah, stupid name, I know. <laughs> the original motion control system that was built to do Star Wars back when it was kind of invented um, was Dykstra Flex, which was named after John Dykstra, who was one of the guys who, who invented it. And uh, so the Breck Nerd... Dyscraflex, Nerdflex. You put them together, and you're you know, only only slightly stupid. <laughs> That's what I called it, and it's you know it's not groundbreaking technology. It's it's one of these. It is a uh, Arduino uh-huh. uh, controller with a CNC shield on top. These little boards that like nest into these boards. Uh huh. This is basically for controlling uh, CNC machines. We're moving X, Y, and up and down, and um, for drilling stuff out. Right. But I just modified it and used a jumper to control four things at the same time. And just controlling stepper motors. Man. One laying here, but uh, here's one. This is actually the end of the, uh, the track system that was built. So this is a stepper motor right there. Okay. All it is is allows for fine control of these. It's, you're going to move this much on that frame or to be here when, we, when you get to that frame. Jeez. And anything you can hook up a stepper motor to, which is anything if you're dedicated enough, mm-hmm. uh, control <laughs> with the animation software. So I can make like a platform move. I can make a, you know, a sun come up. I can make doors open. I can make cars drive. It's just whatever you can hook up to a motor. Man, crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's nuts. 
It's not but really. I, had, I had to build the system completely from scratch just to be able to accomplish that because the 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 rental prices for the equipment to actually do it, the people who make this stuff professionally, mm-hmm. is ridiculous, and it wouldn't fit in my little tiny stage. We would have had to rent space for it. Yeah, renting equipment, renting space, probably would have been easier just to haul the model down there, and then we'd be, we'd have a huge stage. We'd have to rent uh, all the lighting kit, and then unless we brought all our stuff down, mm-hmm. and then to do all the animation, instead of being able to set our own pace, we'd have the you know the the extra pressure of the, the stage rental and the, the the window that we have to perform in is uh, you know the, the crew that you have to hire to do all this stuff mm-hmm. i had the time while we were waiting for the model to be built which took a little bit longer thankfully it gave me time to finish this stuff yeah built an entire motion control system for it man that's crazy so these things are just moving like small whatever fractions of an inch or whatever every single frame yep and then you're just taking a photo of it that's yeah. That's how stop motion works. You, you basically you do a slight pose, and it's you know when you're working with Lego, you're talking about macro photography. So these little tiny increments of change. If you want to make a a, a minifigure raise his arm up, I mean the first pose, if you're doing it right, where you've got a little bit of acceleration, so a deceleration when you get to the top of it. Oh. You have to start. You know your hand would move uh, almost imperceptible amount. In fact, if you looked. If somebody was looking at the model and you said, look away, and you did the first pose and said, look back, they would swear that you had not touched it. Yeah. It's, it moves so little. You know, it's th- things do move fast, and occasionally, you know, if you have, like, a minifig running, you've got a pretty big jump between. But mm-hmm. it's like a walk cycle with a minifigure. It's, you know, the p- poses are so minute when you happen that anybody just passing by would not even notice that you were doing anything. Yeah. So are those are those like changes? Are they just kind of done by you just make a small change and you think that seems right, or is there more to it? It's mostly by feel and by experience. You kind of know from when when you've done it before. But you, the software also allows you to to compare the previous frame. You can toggle back and forth between the frame you just shot. You can lay up an onion skin so you can actually see both images at the same time. Oh, nice. Usually when we're doing stuff. We, our working methodology here is we will uh, do an animatic first. We will cut it first with, with storyboards or we'll shoot it with an iPhone. So you just see our fingers in the frame. We'll make them go through about the speed that we want them to be doing the stuff kind of, you know, it's really crude. Uh-huh. But then we can cut with that. We have a really good sense of the pacing of everything. Right. We also will do like sound effects and, and, edit with even music as well to try and really set the pace of it so that we can lock it in because you really don't want to have to go back and do it again because it's such a painstaking and slow process. Yeah. But then we can cut that scene into its individual shots. We work with handles on the bigger stuff. So we'll actually add eight frames at the beginning and at the end. And then that clip becomes the, the kind of master reference for that shot. And you can actually put it in the background as well as the sound effect. Mm-hmm. And while you're animating, you've got, you can switch back and forth between that reference as well as hear it when you're playing back. And oh. then you make your notes on the side. So when they say like a certain line or a certain thing's supposed to happen, you know, the door opens, you, you can put that note in. And as you're going through, you can see that, that's that frame getting closer. You're like, okay, on this frame, the door opens. I see. So it's going to start that increment. So, and it's just a matter of posing everything that needs to be posed. You know, it can be 
you know, a car driving through the background at the same time two figures are talking and, and background figures are also interacting with each other. So mm-hmm. you composing, you know, one to, to 25 different little figures and have stuff going on in the background as well. Crazy. Get it all set up. Once it's all posed, you're back and forth, make sure everything looks good. You know, don't bump the camera, don't bump the lights. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay, good. And most of the time we shoot on twos, which means we take two frames every time we do a pose. So we only have to do 12 poses per second if you're shooting it, if you're going to project 24 frames per second. Oh, okay, I see. really what we do. Sometimes the client will ask for 30. Mm-hmm. Like, I think uh, yeah, the Harry Potter stuff was doing it 25, which is the normal frame rate of their television. It's, it's uh, PAL. It's 25 frames per second. Okay. Generally, we work in 24, which is the cinema rate of, of frame. And sometimes we work in 30, which is the broadcast standard for, for uh, display. Okay, I see. So when you do... Um, when you're doing like 24 and you take two for each frame, is it essentially going down to like 12 frames per second then? Essentially, yes. 12 okay. frames per second playing back at half or double speed or half speed, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and then, unless something's moving quickly or, you know, we'll also, when we program camera moves, those generally are shot on ones. We don't, we don't advance the camera twice and then shoot the pose. We'll shoot a frame, the camera will move only. And then we'll do a pose, shoot a frame, then the camera will move by itself. You know, so we'll shoot. Uh, unless action is really fast, we'll shoot on twos, but the camera will be on ones. That way it's a nice camera, smooth camera move. And most of the time it works just fine. Occasionally it's a little kind of jittery if the camera's moving sideways, and so, especially if something's moving in the opposite direction. And then we'll have to shoot on singles. Right. So our... Um, whenever the camera's moving, is that always on like a, a motor then? That's never being a human, is it? We've, we've done it uh, by a human. That's, sometimes we'll do like a, like a, a tilt or a pan. We, we try not to do like, um, since we have the equipment, there's no reason to do it before now. We have done stuff on sliders. We've done like big pans uh-huh. where we, we lay out an increment on the, on the, the slider itself. And we'll oh, actually move the slider. Uh-huh. You know, we've, we've done it before, but we don't have to now because we have the equipment. Yeah, that makes sense. Man. So how long are the, uh, like, sessions generally that you're in there doing this for? Are you full, like, eight hours at a time, or is it kind of shorter stuff because it's, like... It's broken up, but it depends on the shot. There were there were some stuff, like, on for Lego Life. Um, generally speaking, James does most of the animation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I tend to do the cinematography. Uh, we both share the building stuff, but, and then um, I do most of the compositing, the, the treatment of it after the, the fact. So we can work in, in, in tandem that way. So a typical shot, I will come in a little bit early. I will rig the shot, get everything set up. If we you know, program a move, if it needs a move, I'll set up all the lights. I have everything all ready to go. Mm-hmm. He'll come in, you know, have make his copy or do whatever he's going to do. And it's like, we'll have the brief. This is what happens. This is about what happens. I put notes in. Sometimes he'll do his own notes. Sometimes he's, you know, in charge of it. So he's done the the pre work as far as the edit goes, and so he kind of knows what's going to be on the background. But I'll get everything ready for him. So all he has to worry about is animation, and then he can just come in. He'll start doing that. And on the bigger stuff, I mean, he's like the there's a couple shots in in uh, the Lego Life thing, literally all day long, starting from like. 
10 p.m. and not finishing until like 6 or 7 p.m. It's a go through and just continue going on it. Mm-hmm. Really don't want to split it between days. Something always changes. Yeah. Turn everything back on. The lights are slightly different. The camera's slightly moved. I mean, this building's, you know, it's got a wood frame on it. So just the temperature difference between the night before and the morning after, the building's slightly, you know, just the floor <laughs> slightly different. Gosh. I mean, with the, the minuteness of the macro scale that we shoot at, it becomes a huge problem. Yeah. So we, we almost never span a shot between days. We don't start it and then stop it and then pick it back up again later. We just carry on. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it makes for a very long day. Yeah. Whew, man, that's crazy stuff. I admire anybody who does that because that is like tedious time work stuff, but it looks so cool when it's done. Yeah. But James is fast too. He's a fast animator. He's way faster than I am. Oh yeah. I did. So I did. You know, most of the animation in in uh, the sequel to the Batman versus Superman uh-huh. was me, and I probably work at half the speed that he works at. Wow. It boggles my mind how quick he is. Jeez, crazy! And you always got to be like super focused because like any one mistake, it just ruins it all, right? Yeah, yeah pretty much. <laughs> most of the, I mean, you can if you knock something over. You know, there's a good chance that you can get everything back to where it's supposed to be because you have the reference of the previous frame that you got. Yeah. And you can just look at that frame and toggle back and forth between it. You'll see if anything's off. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, something will happen like a tree will get bumped in the background, and it's now getting it back into the same exact place is just too much work. Yeah. But it's not part of the frame that's all the activities happening, like the characters are down here and the tree's up in the background. We both know what I can accomplish on the comp side, and okay. just don't worry about it. You know, I've got eight frames, eight good frames of it just sitting there. That's all I need. I'll just split it in, uh-huh. cut that out, and have it going. Stabilize the shot, stabilize that. I've got well, all I need to make the frame, fix that frame. Mm-hmm. And take advantage of that sometimes. We'll do. I like, was a bunch of stuff. We did a the. Uh, oh, so it's got a new name. When we worked on it, it was. Um, it's called DC Comic. Oh, crap, I don't want to get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's Defense Away as uh, Ling Lego Art Show. It's Art of the Brick DC Superheroes. That's the name of it now. Okay. It was called Art of the Brick DC Comics. Um, but it was primarily based on, um, the Justice League was those main characters. And the Justice League from New 52, I think it's called. Um, so it was, well, it doesn't matter. It was a bunch of superheroes. Uh, we did animations to go at the beginning of the exhibit. So as you're traveling through the exhibit and going to each little section, it was all based on uh, seven superheroes and a section for villains. And so we did eight total like pieces Mm-hmm. There was uh, like a, a introduction animation. Then there was a, a figure rotating, and, and Nathan did like a narration that went over that. And then there was a secondary animation. So each one of those was two animated pieces plus the figure rotating, plus motion graphics to bridge between the two. So this whole thing would run. I think it was five minutes, and then it would loop. Okay. So itself was like three to five minutes. Huh. So. I think that's how it 
it worked out. Um, God, it took so long to describe that. I don't remember what we were talking about before. <laughs> <laughs> Where was I going with this? No, that's good. I have no idea. <laughs> wow, man. This is crazy. The stuff you do is so... It's awesome, man, that you've been able to, to do all this stuff and, and turn it into a business and, and do these crazy things. It's fun. Yeah. My wife also works full-time, so that helps. That does <laughs> so, help, huh? I mean, it's, I work in, in bursts, and it's feast and famine. So yeah. you know, I, can, I can make a whole bunch of money in like two months, and then for two months, not much comes in. And then another two months, it comes in. We make approximately the same amount per year, but mine comes in these these big bursts and um, luckily she works full time and uh, we can, you know, and she has great insurance. So we make a good team that way we can continue moving. If I was just on my own, I would, I would not be able to do all this cool stuff. I would have to have something more steady and boring to, to, to make it full time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good. Or I'll She's... be traveling around the world trying to, you know, find work. Mm-hmm. Vancouver, and then now Australia, and now England, now Czechoslovakia. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. crazy. It's good cheese there, especially because after every time you uh, get a check, you go buy a, a lifetime pass to Legoland. <laughs> <laughs> no, only need one of those. I'm always buying something though. I mean, I'm, I'm making props. This is a motion tracker from Aliens. Oh, that's sweet. That's awesome. Pretty printed. I want to put an electronic screen in there, so you know it's kind of an ongoing project. Yeah, that was three D printed. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, as you can sort of tell on the bottom there. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, that actually attaches. It's got magnets. Oh my gosh! Awesome. And it's pre-wired. It's electronics was supposed to go inside. It's kind of on off switch. Yeah. Some of the stuff actually works on it. So Man, wanna... this is so cool. <laughs> I'm going to build this and finish it eventually. So, you know, it's kind of a, that's one of those things. It's like, I can't, I'm going to spend like another hundred bucks on electronics for it. So I got to make sure that everything else is taken care of since the holidays are coming and that project's going to get ignored for a couple months. Right. Yeah. So is all that kind of like the nerds, the nerds and makers.com and all that kind of stuff. Is that more just kind of hobby stuff for you? Yeah. It's, it's kind of, uh, Everything, well, everything, including Legos. The cool thing about it is, well, the problem was I was, I was, had, you know, Brickner.com, I've got the, the Instagram, I've got the Twitter, and, you know, and I'm making like my Han Solo blaster here. Oh, yeah. Here's of it to my Brickner account, you know, and, and it, you know, people are enjoying it, but it always seems like really out of place. Why am I sharing this on my Lego dedicated fan site? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So, it just occurred to me, I, I need something that's got a broader scope, which is probably how I should have approached it in the first place. But um, now I have both. I have nerds and makers, which I, I call the intersection of nerd and maker culture. It's because, you know, I plan on doing way more with it than I've done so far. And right now it's just me, but there's a reason it's plural. I want to have a community. I want to have more people involved. Cool. Um, and it's And it's anything. It could be, you know, whatever you're passionate about sewing or, or cosplay or knitting or carving wood, you know, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, that's the cool thing about it is it can be anything that anybody who, who 
is not satisfied to let not, nothing be there. They got to make something. Yeah. And even like the consumption of things too. I want to do like bad movie night on there and things like that. It's like all these different things that, that make me happy and I, that engage me. And this is kind of a, a universal platform to share all that stuff. Okay. At my core, I'm a nerd and I'm a maker. Yeah. And I just want to, I want to find more people, more me's to hang out with and, and we can all share in the same place. Right. Cool, man. So do you just see it as kind of like a, like a place to share that and display it and, and just have other people who make stuff, share their stuff on there too? Yeah. Yeah. That's the idea. Cool. And it, and it can be anything. It doesn't have to be um, specifically from pop culture or, you know, it could be someone who turns license plates into uh, uh, decorative art. You know, I don't, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Whatever, whatever you're passionate about, that's pretty much what it can be. Man, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally into stuff like that. Like I've built, uh, I built a bunch of stuff. Like I made a shoe phone from like Maxwell Smart, Get Smart, put like a Bluetooth headset in my like wooden <laughs> shoe. Oh, awesome. I want to see this. Yeah, I still have it. I think it still works. I'll pull it out. Definitely want to see this. Yeah, I got stuff like that and just made like the hoverboard from Back to the Future, made that into a skateboard for me to use and, you know, made the lake lamp from uh, a Christmas Story. Uh, dude, you're totally a maker. Yeah, I love that stuff. It's fun. I wish like I'm in, I moved out now. I'm just kind of in like a teeny tiny uh, studio apartment. So it's kind of tough to do stuff now. But yep. yeah, I, I want to get a space where I can start making things again. Because having this space has been absolutely amazing. I mean, I used to build stuff in my garage, and you know, have had a smaller place. You know, it was just on the on the kitchen table. Mm-hmm. Uh, I luckily, my wife is patient and has put up with a lot of crap through the years. But <laughs> since building this place, we're both much happier. I mean, I, I do have to pay rent here, but. Um, Having a dedicated place to make, just to have a place to put all this stuff and 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 to to create anything I want, um, is is so cool, mm-hmm. it's so awesome. Yeah, man. Recommended if you have the means, and I, maybe I don't sometimes, but uh, it is. <laughs> so awesome. Yeah, I'm jealous. There's some cool places that have like, it's like a maker space where you can buy like a membership to it. There's oh, one yeah. in Costa Mesa here where like you get 3D printers and, you know, CNC machines, all that stuff. And it's only like 100, 200 bucks a month and you get access to all that stuff. To it. Yeah, I That's know. kind of what I want to do here too. I, I keep kind of reaching out, trying to find, I know in this, and it's a small town granted, but I know there are people that are doing things with their hands and creating stuff and I, I can't seem to find them. So I, I eventually, I, you know, I, I could see myself starting a makerspace just here in my town. Mm-hmm. Just because I want to bring together all the creative minds and because and, everyone, especially when you have a group of people, you know, so-and-so's got a table sign and he's got a 3D printer and, then, you know, the other guy can weld. And, you know, every one of them has always got that one tool that they need or the, the skill set that they don't have yet that can help. And when you build a community of makers, you can build anything. Yeah. How tremendous is that? Yeah, totally. And it's like, too, like when you build something, you want to like share it with other people who are interested in that stuff, too, you know? Exactly. Totally. Eventually, I'll, I'll find the makers in this in this small town, or at least in the, in the central coast of California, and I, we can all unite and pool our resources and build a cool place. Yeah, you'll do it. Okay. Sweet. Well, man, Tommy, it's so fun talking to you. I love this stuff. 
Um, so I guess real quick, why don't you go over where we can all find you at BrickNerd and your other at nerdsandmakers.com and all that stuff. Brick, BrickNerd.com and Nerds and Makers. It's not uh, – ampersand is part of the, the, the logo, but the actual URL is nerdsandmakers.com, all three words put together. Okay. And then you can find my uh, social media stuff uh, on on both of those places. If you look at me on Twitter and Instagram, it's the Brick Nerd because Brick Nerd was already being squatted on. And um, uh, the other one's Nerds and Makers as well. Okay, perfect. I'll um, I'll put like links to all that stuff too so people can click on that stuff easy in the show notes. Cool. Perfect. Well, yeah, thanks, Tommy. Appreciate you being on and taking the time to talk about this stuff. It's fun. My pleasure. I had a good time. Yeah. All right, man. We'll have a good rest of the day. All right. You too. Hey, guys. Travis is here again. Um, so the podcast is over. It's done. So you can just leave right now. So don't worry about it. But I just had a couple things I wanted to mention and say to you guys. So first of all, thanks for listening to the episode or watching the episode. Super appreciate that. Um, if you want to connect with me or in, in the podcast, uh, we're on we have a website. It's called curiosityness.com. Um, curiosityness is C U R I O S I T Y N E S S. Kind of weird. Um, but that's what it is. Curiosityness.com. Uh, you can go there. We have an Instagram, Instagram.com slash curiosityness podcast. So not just curiosityness for the username. Uh, I'm on Instagram as Trav DeRose, T-R-A-V-D-E-R-O-S-E, if you want to find just me. Um, oh, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash curiosityness. We're on YouTube. Uh, I think just go to YouTube and search curiosityness and we'll pop up. Uh, I don't think we have a URL for that one, sorry. Oh, and we have a, I have an email address, travis at curiositiness.com. So if you want to email me, you know, give me your thoughts on the show, suggestions, tips, uh, maybe like a suggestion for a new, for a guest who could come on, maybe yourself or somebody that you know who might be interested or, or you would like to hear on the podcast, let me know about that stuff. I, I would love to hear that. Um, Oh, and then if you could leave a review, too, for the podcast, that would be super appreciated. Uh, the reviews in, like, in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever, wherever you're listening to this, super help. Um, just drop, like, a star, whatever star review. I won't tell you to do five, but it'd be nice. Uh, so drop a review. You can write a review even, too, if you want. That would be even better. Um, but that's about it. So thanks again for watching. I super appreciate you, you know, listening to the whole show and staying here. Um, and yeah, thanks again. Have a good day. Bye bye.